Our Old Testament reading is from 1 Kings chapter 8. We're going to be reading verse 22 through verse 54. It's a bit longer of a prayer, and we're continuing to look at these prayers that we find throughout Scripture, well-known prayers. This is the prayer of Solomon as he dedicates the temple. And what I want you to listen for as you hear it, kids too, I want you to be listening to this and think about uh, what it is that Solomon is praying for as they are dedicating the temple. What, what are the things that he asks of God? 1 Kings 8, beginning in verse 22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. And said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. Now, therefore, O Lord God of Israel, keep for your servant David, my father, what you have promised him saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel, if only your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me as you have walked before me. Now therefore, O God of Israel, let your word be confirmed, which you have spoken to your servant David, my father. But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built... Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, O Lord my God, listening to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place of which you have said, My name shall be there, that you may listen to the prayer of your servant that your servant offers toward this place, and listen to the plea of your servant, of your people Israel, when they pray toward this place. And listen, in heaven, your dwelling place, when you hear, forgive. If a man sins against his neighbor and is made to take an oath and comes and swears his oath before your altar in this house, then hear in heaven and act and judge your servants, condemning the guilty by bringing his conduct on his own head and vindicating the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. When your people Israel are defeated before the enemy, because they have sinned against you. And if they turn again to you and acknowledge your name and pray and plead with you in this house, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your people, your people Israel, and bring them again to the land that you gave to their fathers. When heaven is shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, if they pray toward this place and acknowledge your name and turn from their sin, when you afflict them, Then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, when you teach them the good way in which they should walk and grant rain upon your land, which you have given to your people as an inheritance. If there is a famine in the land, if there is pestilence or blight or mildew or locust or caterpillar, if their enemy besieges them in the land at their gates, whatever plague, Whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people, Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and stretching out his hands toward this house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act 
and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways. For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake, for they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. If your people go out to battle against their enemy, by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to the Lord toward the city that you have chosen and the house that I have built for your name, then hear in heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you are angry with them and give them to an enemy, so that they're carried away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. Yet if they turn their heart in the land to which they have been carried captive, and repent and plead with you in the land of their captors, saying, We have sinned and have acted perversely and wickedly. If they repent with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies, who carried them captive and pray to you toward their land, which you gave to their fathers, the city that you have chosen, and the house that I have built for your name. Then hear in heaven your dwelling place, their prayer and their plea, and maintain their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you in all their transgressions that they have committed against you, and grant them compassion in the sight of those who carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them, for they are your people and your heritage which you brought out of Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. Let your eyes be open to the plea of your servant and to the plea of your people Israel, giving ear to them whenever they call to you. For you separated them from among all the peoples of the earth to be your heritage, as you declared through Moses your servant when you brought our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. Now as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord, where he had knelt with hands outstretched toward heaven. Solomon's body language uh, teaches us a bit about his prayer. He knelt. He knelt before the Lord. He bowed down before him. Solomon was a great man. He was the king of the Lord's people, and yet he kneels before God. And he stretches his hands out toward heaven. Right? He's not praying to himself. He's, he's praying to the true king that he kneels before. And obviously, the, a prayer this full and rich we can't cover it all in just a few minutes but while we read it what is it that you heard sticking out what is it that that solomon prays for most centrally there's that repeated prayer hear them right when they pray to you hear them when they cry out to you when they plea hear them when they pray toward this house hear them O lord but what are the things that he is to hear? He prays that God would remember his covenant promises, both to Israel corporately and also to him and his family. He says, let your word be confirmed. Right? The Lord has spoken and he prays, Lord, confirm your word. Right? Make 
true your promises. He prays that God would listen to the people and hear them as they uh, sin and are judged. That their guilt would be made known. That the righteous would be rewarded. He prays that when the people sin corporately and they're punished and they confess their sins to him as they pray to him toward this house that he has built, that he would listen, that he would forgive the people. For those who sin and and he says all do sin before you, he prays that they would repent of their sin before God. Ask him to forgive them and be forgiven. In essence, he prays forgive us our debts. He prays that God would listen even to foreigners, even to those who were outside of Israel, if they were to come in and they were to pray. He prays that God would hear them as they come to God in the same way through the temple. He prays that God would give his people victory over their enemies in battle. And the prayer is that all of this would be done specifically as God hears them because they're praying toward the temple, right? Toward the land that God has given, toward the temple where he resides. But of course, he doesn't reside in that place as if he's contained to it, right? What is what does Solomon say? But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. God wasn't trapped there. He wasn't a genie stuck inside a bottle. No. But as the people prayed toward the house, believing in him, trusting in him, that he had promised that he would listen to their prayers as they're directed this way, that they could know that he's going to hear them. And the fact is that that is still true for you. That you are still called to pray toward the temple. And God will hear you. Now, we're not talking about a physical temple because there is none. And even if there was another temple built, uh, it would not be what Solomon's talking about. Now, Solomon built a temple, it would be destroyed. Another temple was built. And that too was destroyed after Jesus came in the flesh. And Jesus did not say that he was going to set up another physical temple in which people would turn to, but he did say, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. And we're told he was speaking of himself. The Jesus Christ is the true temple of God, that the temple which Solomon built, the temple which he prayed God would would listen to the people through as, as they directed their prayers toward that place. That was a type and a shadow of what was to come. And what came was Jesus Christ himself. No longer a physical temple, no longer the shadow, but the fullest revelation of God's presence of God's glory dwelling with mankind. Instead of directing your prayers toward some physical place, you are to direct them toward a person, toward Jesus Christ. You are to pray in his name. And as you do that, God will hear you. 
as you praise the Lord, as you confess your sins, as you make your requests known, and any of the other kinds of prayers you might engage in, when you direct them to God through Christ, it's there that God promises to hear and to listen. All prayers as they're made in Christ will be heard by him. Well, we've prayed our text this morning. Now I'm going to read it for us. It's our New Testament reading, which is in Matthew 6. We'll read verse 9 to 13. Jesus says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is God's holy and inspired word for us this morning. You know, Scripture speaks of the will of God in different ways. Uh, when, when we begin to talk about what the will of God is, uh, we, we often use that phrase to mean different things. And Scripture speaks of many. And when we pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're actually bringing two different ways that Scripture speaks of the will of God together. We're praying for both. There's the revealed will of God, that is to say the things which he has expressly told us to do, right? The things that God says, I want you to do this, the things that he commands, right? What, how he desires us to live, what kind of person he desires you to be. That's the revealed will of God. And on the other hand, you have the, the decrees of God, those things which are his will in terms of what he is going to do and accomplish through time and, and history, his plan and purpose, which is often secret. There are times when he makes some of that known, but much of his decrees, which he carries out by providence in the world, are, are not things that we are told about. This is his, his secret will. And in either case, your prayer should be, your will be done. Your will be done in heaven as it is on earth, right? In heaven, in the direct presence of God, the angels do his will perfectly. They worship him truly. They, they reflect his glory directly. In heaven, all things are in submission to the king of kings. And so your prayer, as it's directed to the Father through the Son, is that this perfect will of God, in the obedience of his creatures and in the submission of all, to all of his purposes, that this would be done on earth. That this, like it is in heaven, so it would be on earth. Thomas Watson, the, the Puritan minister, uh, says likewise that there are two things that we pray when we pray this. We pray for active obedience that we may do God's will actively in what he commands, and for passive obedience, that we may submit to God's will patiently in what he inflicts. That's the prayer. And we've seen over and over as we read some of these major prayers, even as we read the prayer of Solomon today, uh, that at the heart of prayer really is this posture of submission, a posture of 
humility, kneeling before God, so to speak. When you pray, pray that you might obey and submit to the perfect will of God. Pray that you might obey and submit to the perfect will of God. What we're going to do is expand on those two things. Okay, what, what does it mean to pray this in regards to God's revealed will? And what does it mean to pray this in regards to his, his secret will? Well, when you pray your will be done, you should be praying that God would work in you true obedience to all that he has commanded. That you would faithfully do those things that he's revealed. The church father Cyprian says, uh, we say this, that is your will be done. He's commenting on this phrase. He says, we say this not so that God might do what he wishes, but that we should be able to do what God wishes. For who stands in the way of God to prevent him performing his will? This is a prayer that you would do what it is that God wishes. It's directed at God because you have to start with the acknowledgement that anything that is going to truly glorify him, is truly going to be something that he desires, it has to first come from him. It starts with him. He says, you love me because I first loved you. So he's the source of our obedience. And we, we then ask him, right? That's why we're praying it. Your will be done in me. Accomplish what you want in me. We're praying that he might work through us that true obedience that he desires for you. At the heart of this prayer, uh, we see over and over the response to the the command of God in Scripture, being here I am. This phrase shows up over and over again. I've thought for a long time it would be a great study to just go through all of these places where uh, God calls to someone, he commands something, and the response is, here I am, right? Here am I. Uh, What do you want? I will do it. That's the heart that we're getting to when we pray, your will be done. When he reveals what he wants, or when he draws near to speak to his people, that's the heart of obedience. Here I am. What would you have of me? Lord, I'm yours. Accomplish what you want in me. Teach me your ways. I want to serve you. I want to honor you. So whatever you've commanded, I will do. The prophet Isaiah, uh, when he was brought up into the throne room of God, and he, he sees God seated on a throne and, and surrounded by the angelic host, praising his name, he hears at one point God call out, saying, Who shall I send and who will go? And this is his response. Here I am. Right? Here I am, send me. When God revealed his plan to Mary through the angel Gabriel, that she would serve him through bearing the Son of God in her womb, what did she say? Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. In both cases, what's truly being said is your will be done. Do as you want. Help me to do as you want. It's not enough to pray these words, though, and just leave it there. 
Christ's desire is that you would live a life of obedience. That you would trust him and obey him. That's what this prayer is for, that God would work true obedience in you, that you would truly obey in a way that he is pleased with. This is what it looks like for God's will to be done, for you to serve him as he desires. Do his revealed will. And what does he require of you, O man, but to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. God's will for you is that you would do His. God's will for you is that you would do His will. That you would say, here I am, send me. Right? I am your servant. Help me to do what you've asked. When the Apostle Paul is speaking of of the life of obedience and and seeking to honor God in his life in Philippians 3, he says this, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Congregation of Christ, you're called to strain toward the goal of conformity to Christ. To strain for God's will to be done. You'll spend time and and listen to motivational talks to uh, give you some kind of emotional fortitude. Or to encourage you to push a little bit harder toward physical strength. So won't you hear the the commands of scripture won't you hear the the motivational prayer that we're given your will be done your will be done your will be done right let that be the the drumbeat to which you're marching let that be the prayer as you seek to push even harder for excellence and holiness in life So that with this prayer on your lips, you'll have the word of God written on your heart and the cross of Christ laid upon your back that you might follow him in all of his ways. That's the prayer. Your will be done. Help me, Lord. Help me to do your will. Help me to do what you want. Jesus is teaching you to pray that you would be obedient to his revealed will. But it's also more than that. And we said there's these two different parts to this prayer, to the will of God brought together in this prayer. And so this is also a prayer that you would submit to God's unrevealed will, to his secret will, to his decrees, to the way that he works providentially in your life. As God rules in the world... As he exercises his dominion and his sovereignty, there are these things that he's revealed to us. Those are what we're to learn and to teach, to live according to. 
Right? The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may obey all the words of this law. God calls you to obedience in terms of that revealed will. But what about that secret will? Right? What about those things that he has not revealed? In these, he calls you to submit. Now, that's a nasty word today. For many of us, it's a hard word. It's not cruel. Right? It's not oppressive. Uh, although it can be if you fight against him and his will. No, this is, this is God's grace to you teaching you. When we talk about the secret things, the secret will of God, we mean the various ways that God works by his providence uh, that he's not explained to us. Why does God give wealth to some and not to others? Why do some seem to have much harder lives than others? Why do some seem like they have quite easy lives? Why does God allow people to sin against you? And why does he allow you to keep on sinning? Why do you suffer like you do? Maybe you've asked questions like these. Right? Somebody close to you dies. You find out you have a serious, even terminal illness. You lose everything that you have in some kind of natural disaster. All of these things happen within the providence of God. They're not things that are outside of his control. Sometimes uh, people want to defend the character of God by saying, well, there's some things that God just isn't in control of. There are some things that his sovereignty doesn't cover. And that makes some feel better. Oh, that's why there's sin in the world. That's why bad things happen. But that doesn't actually fix anything. That means that there are places where God has no power, no control, and that he, in his own desire, wanted it that way, that the world would be in chaos. This isn't what God says, though. This isn't how God defends himself when these things happen. Job, if you remember the story of Job in Scripture, remember, he lost his children, their families, all at once. Likely, he was uh, in charge of a kingdom that was facing, at the same time, significant loss. He, he lost all of his own wealth. It probably affected others. And it happened almost overnight. He was afflicted with incredibly painful physical maladies, leading to the point where even his wife, Right, the one closest to him, the one that he loved most. Even she said that you should just curse God and die. Right? Even she turned her back on God and on, and on him. Even his closest friends blamed him for what was happening. So he's left all alone in, in some of the most challenging and difficult circumstances you could imagine. And he's all alone. And God seems silent. And yet all of this happened according to the plan and purpose of God, according to his will. Everything happens according to the counsel of his will. 
and he doesn't shy away from that. Right? God doesn't try to hide from that. He takes full responsibility. Yet it was at his allowance that Satan could do any of the things that he did to Job. And that's true in your life as well. That's not just for him. And that can be hard. We think of God's providence as a comfort. And when you truly understand it, right? when you submit to the will of God and you truly understand the character of God, you know that the providence of God as he works out his decrees, his sovereign will in the world, that this is good. Right? It is a comfort. But in the moment, it doesn't always seem that way. When God afflicts you, when you face a hard and painful providence, which you will and you have, it's not as though he's simply without power to change things. It's not as though you've found a piece of life that is outside of his control. No, he's sovereign all the way down. But he hasn't told us why he does these things, at least not totally. Why he allows what he allows, why he afflicts us at times the way that he does. These are the secret things. And when you pray, your will be done. You're praying a prayer of submission to that providential working of God as he carries out his will. You're praying that he would help you to bear up under his will and that you would continue to be faithful through it that you would humble yourself before him. How do we often respond when these sorts of things happen? When hard things happen? And I don't mean hard things like it was a rough day at work today. Right? I mean hard things, bad things, true suffering. When others sin against you in unspeakable ways. When you're in such severe pain or turmoil in your spirit when you're overwhelmed or depressed or discouraged, so much so that you don't want to go on, right? The kinds of circumstances where when you hear Job's wife say, curse God and die, that actually sounds reasonable. The things that make you want to do just that, to curse God, to question him, to doubt him, to become angry with him, Right? Isn't that how we often respond to hard circumstances? We blame him. We become bitter toward him. We become hopeless and resentful and destructive. We begin to spiral. And the Bible doesn't shy away from those types of circumstances that seem to, to push in that direction. Right? Sometimes uh, we maybe hear that the, you know, the Bible's all about you know, having a positive attitude. Right? It's about nice things, love and peace, the good things, right? It's about being kind. You listen to Christian radio as we were doing on the way to church today and heard over and over, positive, encouraging, Caleb. But, but what happens when you taste the bitterness of life? If you haven't known God, as he's revealed himself in Scripture, when the hard providences 
that have not been revealed, when those things happen to you and you don't know why, what do you, what do, you do? Where do you turn? Scripture is actually full of those. It's full of those things, of the hard, painful bitterness of life. It's full of death and pain, of God's people being exiled and conquered, many murdered, starved, people resorting to having to eat their own offspring out of absolute madness and starvation. We're told of kings being forced to watch each of their children be killed and then having their eyes gouged out so that that's the last thing that they see. We're told of forced subjugation, of abuse, of the loss of loved ones, the loss of livelihoods, the loss of everything at times. This happens a lot. The prophet Habakkuk speaks with God when God reveals what he's going to do through the Babylonians, bring them and conquer his own people. Allow them to do that. And, and he says it's, it's his plan. He's doing it. Habakkuk says, O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. Right? In the midst of an incredible suffering that is about to happen, he says, how could you, God? Right? Why aren't you doing anything? How could you let me suffer like this? How could you let your people suffer like this? My guess is there's been times you've probably felt that same way. Maybe said those same things. Or maybe you haven't said them because you don't think you should. But they're there. When you face the darkest times in your life, Jesus still teaches you to pray, your will be done. Right? That you would submit to the will of God. Now, how do you do that? What does that mean? That doesn't mean you love when evil things happen. It doesn't mean you uh, sit idly by when evil is being done. But you submit to his will by trusting in him. Right? That he is good. That he is wise. That he does love you. By continuing even when all else fails to hope in him. Right? Holding on to that hope. Not letting go of it. With hope you know that God will make it right. right. He will make it make sense. He will right every wrong. He will reconcile all things. That from the vantage point of eternity, all will become clear. And even if he doesn't, at that time, reveal everything of why he did it, you'll know that he was using all of it for good. And that even though there are times when you want to die, you will hold on to that hope. Right? Even when everything and everyone else is telling you to give up on that hope, it's not working. Right? It's not doing anything for you. You know it to be true, and so you will hold on to it. Your will be done. 
you know that there's purpose and meaning, there's intention in your suffering and agony. And that the horrors of a world so full of sin can't mitigate the fact that God is going to accomplish his good and true purposes. You might say, I can't stand to live anymore, but I will hold on to that. Right? Your will be done. Where possible, I'll even seek to be cheerful. Right? To submit to his will in a way that says, I'm going to seek your joy, your peace, gladness in the face of death, whistling in the dark, laughing at the schemes of the devil. Because even when God gives him power over you, it's God who he has to listen to. Right? Even the devil is God's devil. It will all be revealed. It will all be made known in the coming of Christ. And justice will be done. It might seem, just like Habakkuk says in the moment, right? justice has been perverted. There is no justice for me. Things aren't fair. Things aren't right. But you know it will be. Your will be done. You submit to God's will as you call to mind what you know to be true. What you know to be true about God. What you know to be true about his purposes in the world. Even when you're facing trial. Right? God never says that you'll never face trials. He says that when you face trials, it will produce in you perseverance. That it will be for your good. God never says that you will always be happy, that you'll never be in want, that you can expect health and wealth to always follow you, that you'll never become sick, that no one you know will die. He doesn't promise any of that. He does promise that he will work everything, all things, for your good if you love him. You call it to mind. You call to mind how time and time again God has taken what was meant for evil by the devil, by your enemies, by your own sinful nature, by a world that is turned against him, and how he took that and he turns it for good. He uses it as part of his own story for good purposes. You call to mind how time and time again Jesus Christ has shown forth, uh, not through a perfect life but through the life of suffering and pain how jesus christ makes himself known this way you call to mind how how much he accomplishes in you not just when you're full and you're happy but when you're hungry when you're desperate i think often of the the book of lamentations if you've read lamentations the whole thing is is centered on the kind of suffering, the lament of the Lord's prophet at the time of, of his people's destruction. He's seen horrific things. Uh, horrific things have done, been done to him and done to others around him. That he, you know, it's the kind of stuff that probably many of us haven't even come close to. He's lived through a siege on his people. Right, where they were forced to resort to cannibalism, 
where children lie dying from thirst, where those who made it through would be massacred or raped or taken into slavery in a distant country, right, where cruelty and evil was on full display. And having experienced that, possibly while still experiencing some of that, right in the middle of the book, it all comes to this. He says, yet, this I call to mind. Right? This, I'm, I'm going to remember this. I'm going to hold tight to this. Your will be done. I'm going to hold on to this, even in the midst of such a calamity. Yet this I call to mind, therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O God. What do you mean the love of the Lord never ceases? Right? It sure seems like it does, doesn't it? But he refuses to succumb to that kind of anger or bitterness or despair. Or maybe it would be better to say that through the, the part of him that is angry, that is bitter, that is full of despair, he still holds on to this prayer. Your will be done. Right? When you're in pain, your will be done. When you're sinned against, your will be done. When you're losing your will to keep going, your will be done. When you don't understand and can't explain why the things that are happening to you are happening, your will be done. This is your prayer. This is what you are to pray. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right, Lord, make me an obedient servant and help me to submit to your will for my life, no matter what it is. It's easy to pray when it seems like that's all good things from my perspective. But he says, pray it no matter what. As you pray this, you're not alone. You've been given the perfect life an example of your Savior. And Jesus, as he teaches you to pray these, these two things in this one prayer, so he too brings them together in his own prayer, a prayer of anguish when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember, this is the night that Jesus was betrayed. Right? This is just before he's arrested. We're told that he was in the Garden praying and he was sweating drops of blood because he, he was in such anguish. He had such great anxiety knowing what was coming. And this is what he prayed. Right? J just before all of that, in the midst of that, right? knowing the, that the greatest of sins was going to be done against him. Right? Knowing that the extreme physical suffering that he was about to undergo. Knowing the kind of spiritual judgment that he was going to bear, greater than any ever will, as he bore your sins. In that extreme turmoil, what did he pray? Lord, if you're willing that this cup might pass, but not my will, yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. 
so too for you. Given that example from the Savior, for strength to accomplish what he has commanded, and for fortitude to bear up under his providence in both, we pray, your will be done. Let's pray just that. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would accomplish your will and purpose in us. That we would be your humble servants. That you, by your Spirit, would work in us true obedience through faith and through walking according to the way that you have set forth for us. And Lord God, we pray that you would fortify us in submission to you as we undergo the many trials of this life and the many ways that you work in us, both that seem good to us and those that don't, that you would teach us, even in the hardest of trials, to pray that your will would be done, to have hearts of submission. Help us, Lord, Help us in our weakness. Have mercy on us. Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.